0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: When you're going to try one of these big, complex cases and you're the lead, you know, take some of the burden off yourself and let other people do it. I think the jury enjoyed hearing from the other lawyers on my team, and they were all excellent, excellent.
0: Please rise, court is now in session. Uh, Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today?
2: I'm feeling very crazy, Steve, as we talked about, I'm not, I'm not sure when this episode will air, but we're, we're entering in sort of the last few months of the year and they're just always crazy, always crazy busy every year. I don't know why I never see it coming.
0: Yeah, I know. We never (laughs) plan for it, but uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's extremely busy right now around the office as I'm sure it is for everybody.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But so it's good that we get to take a break and, and do something fun.
0: Yeah, so uh, I almost, uh, I was going to say, I almost forgot to do the lead in here because you're doing the lead in on the show, but uh, I almost forgot to do our our, uh, announcement of of what show we are and who we are.
2: Yeah, exactly. You, um, you've still got to do that part, but I am going to take lead today because you have a lot on your plate and uh, you, uh, you, you talked me into, I was just getting to like kind of cruise along and.
0: uh... I think, I think the the word is begged. I begged. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, but I am very excited for today's show today. And our guest, without further ado, is Kyla Baldwin. Welcome to the show, Kyla.
1: Hi guys. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
2: We are glad that you're here. And um Kyla is a partner at Klein Inspector, which we've had um Shannon Spector on the show before. Um But Kyla is a partner up there and you can look her up at Kleinspector.com. That's K-L-I-N-E-S-P-E-C-T-E-R.com. And I am super excited to have Kyla on the show today for a lot of reasons, um, including the fact that she's just a total badass. Um, yeah. She's been involved <laughs> in a lot of high profile cases, um, lead counsel in trials with massive verdicts, 80 million, 57.1 million, 41 million. Um, those are all transvaginal mesh cases, which we're going to talk
0: All against uh, Johnson & Johnson. So I'm, I was just going to go out on a limb and say that Johnson & Johnson probably doesn't like Kyla very much. <laughs> <laughs>
1: My husband jokes that they might be tracking me when I would they my ask. But yeah, I've tried
2: quite a few cases against
1: them.
2: Yeah, yeah pretty good. And um, also, I have to say, Steve, I don't know if this has happened before, but uh, this this one seemed new to me. We've had a lot of super lawyers on the show, but Kyla has managed to be a recurring super lawyer super lawyer rising star in both Pennsylvania and New Jersey at the same time. Oh,
0: that is nice. That's that's awesome.
2: Pretty impressive. Um, And also selected as one of the best lawyers in America for 2017, all the way up to 2021 in the future. Um, They already know she's going to be one of the best lawyers in America. (laughs) That's right. Um, But... In addition to all those great successes, um, some of the other cool things that I looked up about Kyla that she's done is she's got her JD, MBA, and LLM all from Temple. Um, she's an adjunct lecturer at Temple. She's been involved in the Pennsylvania Association of Justice and the Pennsylvania Uh, trial lawyers association she's an author and she also I I kind of just can't believe this speaks Italian and Spanish is this true Kyla (laughs) well you know
1: (laughs) I will I will admit that 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 they, they took a play on words there back when I was much younger I could speak Spanish fluently and that was great and then I studied abroad in Italy um, while I was in law school and I could speak some Italian at the time. And at the time I had no problem speaking both now, because I don't use them a lot. I speak a really good Spanish, Italian blend <laughs>
3: <laughs> right, <laughs> just, right. yeah. there
1: in my mind. they are very similar languages. And, and sadly, I'm, I'm, I'm not jet setting between Rome and Madrid every weekend. So, yeah. That is a bummer. That is a bummer. Yeah, Um, I mean, I could certainly read it, but if you ask me to say something, it really puts me on the spot anymore. We'll say
0: hola and chow.
2: (laughs) Yeah, but that's good, that's good. (laughs) Well, even a combo is better than nothing. I feel like for a while I was pretty good with French and now I'm only good with like restaurant menu French. Right. right, I'm I'm good with that level of French and that's basically it.
1: Right, I tell myself all the time I should practice it and then I'm like, what am I going to use it for? You know, and I've got the, the life of a trial or you don't have massive amounts of free time.
2: Well, I was gonna say, yeah, in all your in all your free time. Right, um, right, exactly. And I am a mom,
1: so to, you know, yeah. all my free time is necessarily gone.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're you are pretty busy. Um well I'll get into the case that we're here to talk about today. And one of the reasons I'm so excited that we're gonna talk about this case is um, Kyla, I want to get this right, but this is a case that um you were lead counsel on in 2017 and you tried it with two female associates from your firm. So it was an all female team. And I think kind of record setting for your verdict in that regard. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that was one of the things that
1: I've, I'm so proud of. I've, I've worked on so many big cases and had such, you know, great successes against Johnson and Johnson and other fields. But, you know, kind of when you reached out to me about this podcast, this case always sticks out in my mind for that reason, because it really was record setting that the three women in the courtroom um, for the plaintiff's You know, that was record. I don't know that that's ever been done Um, up until that time. I'm not sure if it's been beat. I I don't check it all the time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's really awesome. And I was really excited to to hear about it and to read the transcripts and know that this was, you know, a team of women, which we all know women are awesome. But still, it's pretty rare to see women on a trial team. And it's especially rare to see an all-women, an all-female trial team. So, um, well,
0: And I'll just say, I mean, you, and you uh, we will talk about this more as we get in, but as I was reading the opening statements of both Kyla and then her opposing counsel, it really did kind of come across to me where Kyla uh, went through and described this procedure in detail and, and then the injuries. And then the defense lawyer kind of came up and just... I mean, I'm of course I'm reading it, but he didn't sound like the most empathetic person. He sounded a little bit callous about it, and kind of like, this isn't made to fix what she's going through. So, it, you know, what's the problem, kind of thing.
1: Yeah, the, the defense lawyer um, had a tough job after the opening to get up because <laughs> because the, the product. Um, The one product, the TVT Secure or the TVTS, which was one of the products at issue. But there were a lot of bad internal company documents about this product where they flat out called it defective and flat out admitted they committed a, quote, cardinal sin with the product. (laughs) And so the defense lawyer really was in trouble the second he stood up. But when you're talking about... um, a woman's vagina and a woman's private part. And then you have to go through all of that. And then you've got to get up there as a defense attorney and try to look sympathetic. A man in that role, it was just tough. He already had a tough job going in. So it it was tough. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Tough job. And from what I read, it sounded like didn't, didn't go, didn't go so well. We know from the verdict, it didn't go so well. Um, Right. (laughs) But so, We'll get a little bit into what the case is about. And um, as a disclaimer, certainly Kyla and Steve know more about uh, medical devices than me. So who knows how much I'm going to butcher in this quick uh, intro about the case, but we oh, can um, fix that out later.
1: No I'm, I'm, I've, I've tried many of these cases,
2: so I'm ready to correct you about a woman's <laughs> vagina. you really
3: like- right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a of information.
2: Great. Great. Let's, so let's do this. So. Um, This is a case that you tried in Philadelphia County, the court of common pleas in 2017. And as we mentioned, Kyla was the lead attorney on the case. It was about a, I read a four week trial, but it sounded more like five weeks. And maybe, maybe that's because that includes your jury selection.
1: With jury selection and everything else, I distinctly remember this because we were picking a jury on my birthday, which was August 3rd. That was the second day of jury selection. And the case was not over by the Monday after Labor Day or the Tuesday after Labor Day. I had to drive my children to school And my kids. My daughter was starting first grade that year and I couldn't drop her off.
2: Um, So I had, I had to uh, get to court that morning and I remember, so it was, it was well over a month with jury selection. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and as we mentioned earlier, this was a case, um, this was Ella and Marvin Ebaugh, um, against, um, several, um, entities, Ethicon, various, uh, companies under the, the name Ethicon, which was owned by Johnson and Johnson, as we, um, as we mentioned, Kyla, their enemy number one. Um, and this was a, this was a case involving that vaginal mesh, which I think people at this point have probably seen some commercials about, maybe, you know, somebody who's had some implanted, or maybe as a lawyer, um, you really kind of know about the, the legal element of these cases. But, um, to back up for a second, Kyla's client, Ella was, um, It sounded like late thirties, early forties, when she started struggling with stress, urinary incontinence, mixed urinary incontinence, Mm -hmm. and, um, basically involuntary leakage of urine. This is pretty, pretty common of women that age. You probably, you might know somebody who, who deals with this. And Ella tried to treat this other ways, less sort of, um, invasive ways and through physical therapy and medication. And ultimately she had to explore other options. So through her physician, her, um, physician starting in, in May, 2007, she had surgery to implant, uh, what was called a TVT secure pelvic mesh device. And we're going to, we're going to talk a little bit about how that works. And I'm going to let Kyle explain that so I don't screw it up, but, um, Couple months later, she, it's really not solving the problem. So uh, after the TVT secure doesn't really handle the problem, she has another product of Ethicon a, a TVT, what we'll just call I guess the TVT implanted, and. Uh, as you might expect, because something always bad happens in the cases that we're talking about, um, Ella suffered really severe complications as a result of this mesh, and it basically eroded through her urethra, um, requiring her to ha- go undergo multiple mesh removal surgeries, which we'll talk about. I had no idea um, Uh, how invasive those were um, and how significant those were. And so um, we'll talk about it, but basically as a result of that erosion, uh, Ella suffered permanent injuries that there's really nothing she can do about. Uh, She, she lost control of of the muscles around her urethra. So she can, um, I think one of the things you said, Kyla, that was, that was just, the best way to describe it is that she's basically chained to a toilet for the rest of her life. Um, and, but in addition to that, we're talking, you know, significant amounts of pain from the scarring and, you know, difficulty having sex and just, you know, the things as a, as a woman you should be able to do that are just a constantly a source of pain or discomfort, um, or embarrassment. And so Kyla represented, uh, Ella and, and her husband in a case against Ethicon and Johnson and Johnson and, and what she uncovered in her case. And one of the things that we're going to talk about is, and it's just particularly shocking is the, basically the lack of testing that was behind these products when they, when Ella had them implanted and, um, that it was, about money, which doesn't surprise our regular listeners, mm-hmm. doesn't surprise our products lawyer listeners. Um, but I it's think not, it's still... not always
0: so obvious though. In this case, it was really obvious. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. Like like show me the money, obvious. Right.
0: Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah.
2: <laughs> and so we're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about um, we sort of alluded it to it earlier, but the way that um Ethicon and Johnson and Johnson tried to defend the case, but um, You know, it was kind of went back to sort of your typical med mal blame the patient blame pre existing conditions, Um, say she was sort of informed of the risks and the risks outweighed the benefits and that sort of thing. But uh, the jury wasn't buying it and Shown by their verdict, uh, they awarded seven point one million dollars to Ella in compensatory damages and fifty million dollars in punitive damages for a total verdict of fifty seven point one million dollars which have, which as we 've talked about was record breaking and um, such a great result and so um, Kyla, thank you for bringing this case for us to talk about and I think I want to back up for a sec. Well, actually, let's start with what I screwed up and what needs to be added to that (laughs) summary.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I don't think you screwed anything up, so that was that was good. You gave a a good overall summary. That was good. um, I guess we can start with my client, who um, Ella Eball you know, at the time, the stress urinary incontinence she had, it was a very um, minimal condition. It's something almost anyone who has a child suffers with, where if you do a jumping jack or, you know, put any pressure on your pelvis, you're going to leak a little bit of urine. It's not just where it comes out for no reason. It's it's when you put pressure on, on the on the bladder, um, um, that a little, little, little bit of urine squeaks out. And and it usually happens because the urethra, which is the, I, I liken it to a pen cap. It's just a small tube that connects the bladder to the outside of the the body when the muscles around that um aren't as strong as they once used to be they they age like everything else and they just can't keep it closed shut like it should be and keep it in place so when you move around and you put pl- pressure on the bladder and, and those organs it moves a little bit and you'll lose a little bit of urine but but what's important about all this i guess is that ella really had a lifestyle condition it wasn't anything that serious and you know in fact i still remember to this day the first time i met her she told me the reason she got the surgery, she was an avid softball player and played in a pretty advanced women's league and actually like toured around playing softball. And she would get really upset when she would physically slide into bases and and, and wet herself. And she didn't like wearing a maxi pad during games. You know, that was her big complaint in life. So she was certainly a pretty active lady. Um, and, you know, the defense, as they do in all of these cases, want to blame the plaintiff. And they wanted to point out all of the other things that were wrong with her. To, um, that has made her life miserable to include the fact that she's actually had a hip replacement. It was a Johnson and Johnson hip um, that was recalled. This poor woman filed a lawsuit um, that settled, but she had testified in another case that the pain from the hip had ruined her life. Um, inevitably, she got that hip tapic amount replaced and had healed from that and, and was still very active at the time that she got her vaginal mesh implant. So I think that's an important point just because, it's not like getting a, a pacemaker or, or something that you necessarily need. For, for most women, it's just a lifestyle condition. I I think any mother or anyone who's about five to 10 pounds overweight, once you hit your fifties, really, you're going to start to experience this. Um, so it, it's not something that's life threatening.
0: Yeah. I noticed that in the, um in the again, in the defense lawyers opening, I mean, he, he seemed like he was kind of blaming her for the incontinence or like, you know, kind of like, what are we supposed to do? She had five kids. She's physically active you know, she's, she, you know, went to the doctor because she must be urinating pretty badly. I mean, he made it sound like, uh, you know, it must have been a very embarrassing condition that she needed to get uh, treated. And so they tried this, you uh, you know, uh, the TVT, which, you know, he, he goes through in detail about how her doctor told her all of the the problems that could happen with it. And that he said it might not work and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, I just thought it was interesting how he, you know, made such a point of the, of the fact that she had five children and was very physically active as sort of suggesting, well, that's why she's, you know, leaking urine or has, has uh, you know, incontinence.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, um, as a woman, I'm sure Yvonne uh, knows this, you know, you do have to go to a gynecologist every year. If if you're relatively healthy, you go every year. And one of the questions they review with you is sort of, (laughs) do you leak at all? It's, It's something they ask you regularly. So it's, I'm not saying she wasn't complaining about it. She was when asked, she would make the complaint, but as a woman, you're asked about that specific complaint. And I don't know that there's an equivalent for a man to go see. You don't go see a gynecologist where someone's asking, you know, how's your urinary stream? How's right. your flow? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it, it's a question that a woman has to answer every year. So you're going to see that in a woman's medical records over a decade or two of her life because most women start to go probably around age 18, I think, to a gynecologist. So you're asked every year. And yeah, he did make a big deal of it. And yeah, it was all over her records that that she, quote, complained of it. But it's also a routine squ- Greening question: When gynecologists are taught how to do an annual exam, it's it's one of the questions you ask a woman. You know, how physically active are you? Do you have kids? How's your urinary stream? Do you do you have this issue? So it's it's so so common. And yeah, they want to blame it in front of a jury. But I also, in picking a jury in these cases, I always think it's important to at least have one female on the jury so that they can understand when the defense wants to get up there and be like, this is terrible. I don't think most men, unless you work in my office and work on these cases, really understand quite how common this problem is for women and that it's not that serious. Whereas the defense tries to paint a very different picture of what it actually is.
3: Right.
2: Yeah, I thought one of the effective things, um that, that you did related to, um, both, you know, this pa- the past history of, of the, the hip replacement issue. Um, but then also kind of what complaints, um, or documentation she was making, um, at her various doctor's visits about, about issues. One of the things I thought was really effective that you did, and it sounded like you, um, you had done it, uh, through an expert was you had basically, Tracked uh, through her records, the kind of the complaints that she had been making about about various things, and basically the amount that that had increased once she had these TVT, once she had the TVT implanted.
1: Right, and um, I, I guess I should admit this, but I will. It sort of happened very um, organically. I did not plan to do this in the beginning, but as our expert, um, Dr. Tom Margolis, he's a urogynecologist in the San Francisco Bay Area, but. Um, As we went through the records, which we always do with him on the stand, and he went through sort of her pre-records, that's pre-implant, you know, we made a list of sort of, this is where she was, and you know, you have to own these things. This was her condition. And then as we started going sort of her post-records, just to to express to the jury... how terrible it was. We started making a list like, boy, she's bleeding, boy, she's got stabbing pains. And now it's not just stress incontinence. She's got no control of her bladder. She's just leaking urine. You know, she thinks she has to go to the bathroom and she's the entire contents of her bladder are emptied. It's not just something you can solve with a maxi pad. She now carries around pants with her because she pees her pants, which she happened to do mid trial one time, which is embarrassing. Oh, she had wow. to the jury that she had to run out to the bathroom and change her pants. Um, you know, and then, even just the procedures, you sort of take it for granted. I think in a lot of, lot of medical cases, whether they be medical products or medical malpractice or any case where someone has to get medical treatment, even the procedures themselves that you have to go undergo, even just diagnostic procedures, are, are not pleasant. Um, anyone who's got an MRI knows an MRI is not pleasant, but getting something like she has to get, like a cystoscopy, which is where they literally stick a probe in through your urethra to look at the inside of your bladder, if you show someone what that probe looks like, it's a scary long piece of metal. And I don't think you want that stuck into your urethra. And when you just have your expert show the and then you put that on the list. Like she had to undergo a cystoscopy. If she never got this mesh, she'd never have to have this big piece of metal, you know, literally shoved through her urethra. And, that, and that's not pleasant. So the before and after list, as I said, it kind of grew organically. And then as we went, I kept going and all of a sudden, and I remember doing it on like a whiteboard flip chart type thing with a big marker. Her pre-list, I think, was one page, if that, and her after of all the different things she had to endure, we were at four or five pages. I mean, it was multiple pages because we just kept listing them and listing them. And I think that was really effective for the jury when the defense tried to sort of paint a picture of how bad, quote, she was before. Right.
3: It.
2: Yeah, I, I just thought that was, that was really effective, even reading you talking about it, which was in your closing. So obviously, it's not seeing the expert testify, but... Um, I I thought that was really effective. And likewise, I thought the way that you described the various procedures that she had to undergo and even the procedure, one of the things I noticed, I think it was in your opening is in explaining, you know, how the vaginal mesh works to the jury, you were... I think I think Steve's nodding. You well, are. no,
0: I was just going to say because I because you were uh, um, so uh, Kyla was very uh, succinct and to the point, but really descriptive. Um, it's so descriptive that I had to pull up a YouTube video because I just wanted to see what, what oh. it looked like. And oh man, does this thing? You know, they I guess they call this minimally invasive, but uh, man, it looks painful. Yeah, um, I mean,
2: is this good? Is this? I had no idea. Is that part of the? Is that good marketing? I I think it sounds like, you know, like is that almost part of the marketing, or is it just me being an idiot? Because I think it sounds like it's it's not that big of a procedure and not that big of a deal. And then you actually hear you describe it, or if you're brave enough to watch the YouTube video, it is a lot
1: (laughs) more than that. Well, Steve, good for you, number one. (laughs) I've watched it once, I think, the whole way through, and then I normally turn it off. But. um, that was a marketing ploy by them. I, may, I mean, they they marketed these products as minimally invasive, and in fact, a lot of the doctors who used the product were doctors who did not feel qualified or comfortable doing the other surgical repairs, which were, um, much more complex. And I say complex in that they were more of an open procedure or you had to do it, um, robotically, you know, something that was a little bit more complex, but not any less invasive, if you will. So some doctors weren't comfortable or weren't trained to do something called a Birch procedure or an MMK, which are, um, involve only a couple centimeters of sutures in the body. And without getting into it, although they involve abdominal incisions, and, and some normal run-of-the-mill gynecologists won't do those kind of surgeries just because they're not comfortable doing abdominal surgeries. But these doctors, because it was advertised as minimally invasive and just a vaginal surgery, felt comfortable putting it in. And, and, and then that's really a problem because, um, as I described to the jury in detail about how to do this, um, although it's a vaginal surgery um it's, it's not minimally invasive you're still you're still going right past all the organs and all the nerves that you would with an open abdominal procedure and um sadly you're doing it blindly you're using these kind of scary looking tools um called trocars which is like right. a, a big metal hook to just tunnel back in through the, the tissue behind the vagina without seeing it you just have to kind of blindly know where the different organs are which to me is a little terrifying and Every time in front of the jury, you know, it's my experience in a products case, you want to try the products, not the plaintiff. You know, you want to start out by by showing the jury what we're talking about, and, and you show them these hooks, and they're just terrified. And then you Tell them you're going to cut open a vagina, and every every guy in the room kind
0: of oh yeah,
3: <laughs> they wait,
1: right,
0: right,
3: right.
1: Well, and,
0: and that's what you know. That, I think that's what made me want to uh, not that I you know have some morbid curiosity. I was just trying to <laughs> figure out uh, when you when you called it a a tunneling technique. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was like, I don't I'm not sure I understand what you mean. And Then I watched it, and I was like, they really are just tunneling in there with the, with these you know big uh, tools. You know, yeah.
1: I mean, I, I guess. Um, it, this, all the rage now are these metal straws that, that are um you know better for the environment and and literally the tools used to implant this are like the metal straws that you get you get that you get or see in a restaurant except they're sharp and pointy at the end it's right. like it's like a knife at the end and then you just make an incision in the vagina and start inserting these blindly back in the tissue around the bladder and the urethra which is just to me terrifying because that area's got a lot of nerves in it, so women you know when they have to go to the bathroom, and so yeah. they can have sex, and so they can have babies, and do. There's lot, there's lots of stuff going on down there. Yeah,
0: yeah I, mean, I I thought that was a great point in the when you're talking about the damages. It's just you know that that mm-hmm. maybe people didn't know. You know, just the, how many nerve endings there are there because you that's yeah. you it's, sort of a pleasure center. It's a it's a place where you uh, mm-hmm. you know it tells you when you got to go to the bathroom. But if you if there's something bad going on like scar tissue, mm-hmm. it hurts a lot.
1: Yeah. It's, yeah. it's funny. I was talking to a physician recently and he was um a colorectal surgeon and, and this guy was brilliant. And I said, "How do I ever fall into Colorectal surgery, like why not neurosurgery? And he goes, it's one of the most fascinating areas of the body from an intellectual standpoint because all of the organs are so elastic and move and they all depend on each other. Because, you know, when a lay person thinks about it, you're dealing with some not so nice fluids and, and everything that's getting dispersed <laughs> in the body. But I had never really looked at it that way, but there is medically, it's, it's a fascinating area.
0: All right, Yvonne, this next company that we're talking about is literally a company that has been with our firm since the beginning. And I don't think we could survive with because every time we go to trial, we always have Bob or Liz or one of their other technicians who is helping us do our trial presentations. And I'm talking, of course, about legal technology services. You can find them at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: Yes, they do all things visual. That's their big tagline. And it's definitely true. They have saved our bacon so many times and can help you out with so many more things uh, that you might even, you know, not even think about. I mean, they can help you with demonstratives for trial. They can help you with video depositions, stay in the life videos, stuff for your website.
0: Settlement videos, witness statements. I mean, literally it is anything technology-based or as Yvonne already said, all things visual. They are huge at helping with the demonstratives that we put in front of the jury. They are friends of the firm and have just done tremendous work for us over the years. So pick up the phone or get on the computer and look up Bob, Melanie, or Liz at LTSAtlanta.com. And you can also call them at 770-554-1633. That's Legal Technology Services at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: And Steve, don't forget, we have a gift for our listeners.
0: Oh, yeah. I totally told you to remind me, and I totally (laughs) screwed it up. So, yeah, so what I forgot to tell our listeners is that... um, if you mention the Great Trials podcast, when you call in the legal technology services or write into them, uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. So mention the podcast, Great Trials podcast, and uh, they will give you 10% off of your first job. And again, that is LTSAtlanta.com. Legal technology services, uh, give them a try.
2: So the procedure to, to implant um, these devices, these products, it, even if they go well, is it, I was surprised by sort of how much more invasive um, it was. And then on top of that, these products had significant problems. Um, and Kyla, I was, I was hoping you could just talk a little bit about, because I think um, a lot of people don't know, they know at least some of the mesh was a problem, but they don't, they don't know why. They don't understand what was happening.
1: Sure. Yeah. And that makes sense because we're talking about it. So, so what, the, what the, the, the procedure really is, is the implantation using that incision into the vagina to put a plastic mesh um, underneath the urethra to support it so that it doesn't move as much in theory and that a woman, you know, as she coughs or sneezes or does a couple jumping jacks, the urethra will have a, a, literally a piece of plastic mesh underneath it that sort of will keep it in place so it won't be hypermobile and you won't lose urine. The problem with the plastic in in that area is that, um, one, you're doing a surgery through the vagina. Um, It's what's considered clean contaminated. You can't get it perfectly sterile in an operating room because it's a vagina. It's meant to have bacteria down there so you can have sex and things like that without getting wildly ill every day. (laughs) Um, And so you can't get rid of those bacteria. So if you put a foreign substance in through the vagina, you're, you're necessarily going to introduce some of those bacteria into the underlying tissue where it doesn't belong. Um, it can create a, what's called a chronic inflammatory response, meaning the body is fighting it forever. Um, in Ella's case, that late, led to chronic urinary tract infections, which are horrible to go through, and then you get, you know, antibiotic resistance buildups against different and they can't be treated and they're painful. Um, the mesh itself, it, it's almost like a basketball net. It is the best way to describe it what it would look like if you were looking under a, a magnifying glass. and and when you pull it in and you have to sort of, um, tighten it to get into position. Imagine if you pulled on a basketball net, the pores or the holes between the net would collapse. They they get smaller. Mm -hmm. And that's actually what happens with the mesh. And that all sounds kind of like, who cares? But you need the, the tissue to grow kind of in and around those interstices so that it becomes almost like natural tissue. But when the pores collapse, it becomes what's called microporous. The pores are too small for the tissue to grow in and around those interstices. And and then you get what's called um, scar encapsulation. And there's lots of big words, bridging fibrosis, but it it basically means scarring. You get scar that builds all the way around it. It's called scar plating. And this thing becomes hard and rigid in your vagina. And now the vagina, we talked about this, but it's meant to be elastic. Um, The urethra is meant to be elastic as is the bladder. They're organs that have to expand, right? when your bladder fills, it has to expand. And then it contracts when you go to the bathroom, the vagina expands to accommodate sex right. and it and, and gets smaller. And if all of a sudden you put something in there that's covered in scar, which by definition, you know, it, it is rigid and hard tissue and not elastic, those organs can't function comfortably they once did. So anything that involves any expansion, you know, filling your bladder, um, having sex, anything like that, going to the bathroom is necessarily gonna cause pain. Um, More pain now because you've got all this going on in an innervated area. You've got a hard rigid scar and the scarring can trap the nerves. That's called nerve entrapment. So so you could, in Ella's case, she had chronic pain everywhere she went. It hurt all the time and it would hurt more um, if she tried to have sex or when she went to the bathroom. Um, And and, and then this hard rigid mesh, this piece of plastic that the body's fighting and you've got infections and now you've got scarring and the organs are (laughs) not elastic it can migrate out of place. It becomes so tough inside the body that it can migrate into organs. It shouldn't be in. And that's called an erosion. Um, and in Ella's case, um, she had it erode, not into her vagina. Some women have it erode and it Mm. their, their partner's penis is injured right through their Ah. vagina. In her case, it eroded through the urethra, which is worse than something in the vagina because the urethra is so tiny and it's such a small thin tube um if you get scarring in there you're never going to be able to go to the bathroom the same way and ella right. had large amounts of scarring and and we had pictures from a cystoscopy of the inside of her urethra large calcium deposits in there so i'm sure everyone knows kidney stones are immensely painful you don't want to get like a kidney stone stuck in your urethra permanently that that's that's right. terribly painful and that's what she had to deal with and then her urethra became almost um serpentine like it became twisted because of all the scarring. So it wasn't even a I don't know how to describe it other than a straight shot for her to go to the bathroom anymore. So not only does she have this incontinence where sometimes she has no control because the muscles and the nerves are just shot from everything that's going on. but when she has to go sometimes and she's sitting on the toilet, she can't get it out. She had right. some retention issues because her urethra is not a straight shot, so there's just no predicting it. And, and then she would tell horrible stories of I really had to go, I go into the bathroom in a friend's house. And I, I sat down on the toilet, and I have no predicting what direction my urine will come out. Oh man! So she peed on like the back of a wall or something. I was like, <sighs> oh my goodness, and and <laughs> just the more how mortified she was, and that's part of the reason just a pad or a depend wasn't even enough to protect her because it no longer comes straight out. If that makes sense.
0: Yeah. So. Well, and, and the, um, I mean, you talk about the erosion, it also, it, so it perforated her urethra, I think you said five times, right? Uh, and then, and then actually sound like she actually got some mesh up into her bladder as well. Is that, is that right?
1: She did. It was spotted inside of her bladder and that's, that's, that's dangerous when you get that you get what's called a neurogenic bladder. Um, once you really perforate the bladder that really affects the muscles that control it and the nerves that control it. So, um, you can't control your bladder at all. And she ended up developing a condition called, um, ISD intrinsic sphincter deficiency. It just means you have no control down there anymore whatsoever. Yeah. There's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. You know, you're going to get the urge to go and not go. You're going to get the urge to go and everything's going to come out. you know, she, she had something called, um, levator muscle spasm once the muscles are injured in, in your pelvic floor, um, they'll start to almost get tremors. Like, an involuntary muscle spasm. Um, And when you get that, um, the bladder might just empty itself. It will, it might not, but it's going to hurt very much when you've got a lot of scarring and not elasticity down there.
0: And this particular mesh was made of polypropylene I saw. And is that what causes the chronic inflammatory um, condition is the the reaction to the, the proline, I think it is?
1: Right. So polypropylene mesh is the same. Polypropylene is the same material that's in a suture. If you were to go get stitches or something, and and they've been around for decades and decades safely, but you got to keep in mind when you get a a suture, like let's say you got your appendix out or something, you'd only get a centimeter or two of of sutures, right? But in the TVTS, which was the the first product she had implanted in 2007, that's about five centimeters long of mesh. It almost looks like a a little piece of um, scotch tape is about how long it is. But just five centimeters of polypropylene mesh is something like, I think, 30 to 40 feet of polypropylene sutures if you were to unwind the mesh. Right. So um, there's there's a concept called mesh load that, you know, your body can handle some foreign materials that aren't inert, right? Like if, if you were to put one suture down there and do the other surgical option, a Birch procedure, your body likely wouldn't fight you know, it for that long, because it's not that much foreign body, your body can tolerate it. But just the mesh load is so much greater that your body sends out um, the big guns, if you will, it has what's called a giant cell reaction. It, it's really fighting the amount of foreign material, trying to get it out, trying to push it out of the body, which is the reason why you see these erosions and things. And if you... Um, where one of the big defenses of the case that the defense always stands up and says sutures have been used for years and they use it in cardiac surgery and knee replacement surgery and all these things. And it's all true. Yes. But when you get cardiac mm-hmm. surgery, you don't get th- 30 feet of polypropylene right. sutures put in and the second product she had, the TBT retropubic, but really it's just what's called the TBT, which by the way is still on the market. Um, That's about 12 centimeters long. After you trim it, a woman might have eight to 10 centimeters left in her body. So that's got to be what, like 80 feet of plastic. That's still a lot more than you're going to get in any other kind of surgery.
0: Right, and, and and I couldn't understand. Sorry, sorry, about, I know you. Have no, a question, no, go for it. I, I couldn't understand when she because the the TVT secure didn't work, and so she had to have the TVT put in a few months later. Are are they leaving the TVT secure in, and then just putting the TVT on top of that, or sort of uh, beside that?
1: Right. So that's one of the other, I guess, defects, if you will, is that you can't get these things out because they get sort of encapsulated with scar tissue and are put in that tissue behind the vagina there's no way to safely remove them all because if you wanted to get it out, you'd have to go in and like take organs out to dig around in the tissues behind organs, which you can't do. So when one of them didn't work, when say you had a TBTS and it didn't work, um, the, the advice or the way that people were taught is just go ahead and put a second sling in kind of right over top the first one. So now you've got double the mesh. load, well. right. um, and, and then if you have a complication, you're not even sure where to look because the TBT retropubic versus the TVTS. Are put in slightly different planes below the urethra, and there's so it's very hard. In her, um, I think it was in her 2012 surgery that Dr. Toby Chai did. He was up at Yale at the time of the case, but um, he went in to remove it, and he had to cut her open literally from hip to hip and do an exploratory Mm. surgery to try to find this stuff. So you can only imagine how morbid that was.
3: Oh yeah.
2: Such a night, I mean, such a nightmare, obviously. And then I was reading your closing, and one of the questions that I had because I feel like I could not have been reading this right, it w- are about it's about Dr. Douglas, who was that <laughs> <laughs> was that her doctor that that did the first surgery? Yeah,
1: that was her implanter. And so he um which I had originally the, the case was pled with failure to warn claims with I dropped after his deposition. Um, he, he stood by the product. However, at the time of the case, he was a retired physician. Um, and he just didn't have a lot of knowledge about the products. You could tell in the deposition and he made a lot of comments that just, yeah, it was good. It was great. Whatever. I would put five of them in a day. Sure. I knew all the warnings, but then the reality is he didn't know any of the literature. He didn't even realize that the TVTS had been taken off the market. He certainly hadn't seen the internal documents, the ones where they admitted they hadn't studied it and committed a cardinal sin and rushed it to market you know, he didn't know about any of the preliminary data on either of these things and why it wasn't good. Um, so it, it almost helped us. It, it's it's so weird to say this, but it almost helped us in this case to be able to drop that claim and then just right. be like, and look, they duped the doctor too. Like he didn't know because his deposition, he just had no clue what was going on with the reality of the products.
2: Yeah. And I mean, it, it sounded like he made like, he like made fun of of your urology i don't even urology gynecologist there's there's like a combo word but like he almost like he said some questionable stuff about
1: he some attitudes like he he treated me in that in that deposition like like i had two heads and i was making all this up and i had no dude i was talking about and then when we would go through her doctors toby chai is the one who did the open hip to hip surgery and he said to me is that the chinese doctor and I, <laughs> honestly, yeah. Like, well, yeah. It's like, yes, he's he's Asian, but you know, he is a practicing fellowship-trained neurogynecologist. You know? <laughs> I think he knows what he's doing. Yeah. Well, and like comparing them to hairstylists or something. Correct. Correct. <laughs> yes. Yes. He he made some really demeaning comments. Really demeaning. Comments. And I was able to talk about them all in the closing, which I, which I think only helped us because Ethicon wanted to then embrace this man because he loved their product so much, and they said, look. Dr. Douglas knew what he was talking about. And he went into this knowing all the risks and doctors knew, and she's just a casualty. And it almost helped us because then I was able to bring up every, you know, sort of politically incorrect, terrible statement that he said, and, and these buffoon like comments that he made. And I and say, this is who they're now relying on. This is, this is their guy. This was their market. And that reinforced the theory that they were, you know, advertising this and marketing the stuff that people that, don't do surgeries really, and it was a money-making technique for those doctors. You know, Doctor Douglas was one who wouldn't do a birch. If if she wanted a birch procedure, which is the alternative to this, he wouldn't do one. He would have referred her to a urogynecologist. But because the TVT was out there, he was able to make money.
0: Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, what you learned. I, I want to get to. We alluded to it to at the very beginning. What you learned about kind of the the sort of money making. Um, motive behind all of this, which we, we always assume when it's a pharmaceutical company or Johnson and Johnson, but I think is especially, um, what you found in this case was shocking, but I wanted to, before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, um, what discovery was like in this case in general, you know, as far as how hard you had to fight to get this stuff, did you get it just a big document dump? And if so, how did you manage that?
1: Right. So, so these cases were initially worked up in the multi-district litigation in Mm -hmm. West Virginia. Um, and, and while a bunch of cases were worked up there, the generic discovery was done there. So all the internal documents and all the depositions of the corporate witnesses, I was not involved real early on when all that was going on. I got pulled in, gosh, probably in about 2014 on these mesh cases. When we started trying them in Philadelphia, um, my firm sort of has a, a separate, well, there is a separate MDL program there. Um, not MDL program, but there's a a separate, uh, like
0: a state, uh, a a state form of the MDL. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, so we, our firm was going to start trying them and they asked me to get involved. Um, So I was the one who was involved in sort of the case specific discovery. Gotcha. Um, But I can tell you that in the MDL, I I do know now that I've been around the litigation so much, um, it was basically a big document dump. What they do is take, hundreds upon hundreds of thousands of documents and put it in a database that we have access to and so going into trial I spent many hours sitting there with staff going through this looking for documents and reading the the corporate depositions that were taken um of the witnesses you know um in in the MDL and and scouring through them to sort of see what the best way to try it was because not a lot of cases had been tried before we we tried this one um I, I can tell you though the defense lawyers i'm not real sure how they sleep at night i, I mean they give us <laughs> a hard time on everything they're right. terrible to deal with i mean what's the adage they, they get paid by the lawyer it, they're by the hour and it shows <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> in everything yeah. they do but i honestly i say that to my colleagues specifically the female lawyers I, I don't know how they sleep at night knowing this stuff is going on because they just give us a hard time about everything and i
2: i think in the back of my head like do you have a conscience i, yeah. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Got it. So you so basically there's this big universe of of sort of the general documents that that you didn't have to fight for specifically in your case, but it's still this massive amount that you have to decide what you're going to use and how you're going to frame your case with it.
1: Right. There's no fighting over the documents. All the documents were in a database. It's it's combing through that to figure out what's valuable. I mean, you know, when you get over a million documents, finding the needle in Haystack, like these ones that say they committed a cardinal stand is not easy. And I can tell you this trial, as I said, it started in August, but I remember that summer, um, my husband was mad at me because he'd want to go to the beach or this or that. And I'd be in the office on like a Saturday at like five o'clock at night. Like I found a document. Yeah. <laughs> the whole summer. And I remember my yeah. fourth weekend being at the office and a lot of time and, and then there is a battle you know at pre-trial to get the documents for use in court now all of a sudden johnson and johnson doesn't know <clears> at <throat> their business records and all oh, right. those are our no and you know they they disavow everything and this isn't ours and that's taken out of context and so there is there is a lot of evidentiary battles to be able to use the documents you want to use
0: gotcha i, I did want to ask um because i, I you did a uh, in your opening did a really great job going through some of the um uh, article, I, I guess the, the scholarly articles that, that Johnson and Johnson used to say that this mesh is uh, safe and it's been tested and all that kind of stuff of, of going through and either showing, you know, with the TVT secure, how they really didn't do any testing. Um, and then, you know, even with the TVT, uh, the, the studies that they had done were basically ones where the, the doctors had made money from J and J in order to support the, the, um, The TVT, and I think that would be interesting to hear for our our audience, just how you were able to get to the bottom of, you know, these because they're always going to stand up and say, you know, these things have been studied, they've been tested by doctors all over the country, all over the world, saying how safe they are, and you were able to 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 get beyond that and show how you can't really trust all those studies.
1: Yeah, and that was no easy feat. One, it involves reading a lot of medical literature, but then um, uh, as Tom Klein would say you have to drill down behind the uh, literature and read the, the citations and read the footnotes and sort of even check the math to make sure things don't work out. So I can tell you, like, for instance, the TVT, which was their first product, um, they paid, I think it was $24 million for it to the inventor. And then they conditioned other payments to him on the outcomes of studies, basically saying you'll get X amount of dollars if and only if your studies don't show any additional complication rates than what your earlier studies are. So Obviously, that's not ethical um, right. to have, you know, payments conditioned on the outcome. And and then what they ended up doing is is using the patients that were in his initial cohort and tracking them in the long term for 17 years. And now they get up and say, look, we have some of the longest data of any medical device. We have 17-year data. But what they don't mention, and this is, goes to what I was talking about, sitting drilling down and reading the fine print, I think it's something that they lost like, Fifty percent of of the of the women who were in the initial study dropped out of the study and and didn't come back to get a follow up gynecologic exam. The seventeen year data, so at seventeen years they had data on something around in the neighborhood of only fifty percent of the women. And if you actually looked at the number of complications and totaled them up, the complication rate was actually quite high. They just didn't actually do the math. They said like, oh, of the ten women that were left, only one had a urinary tract infection and only. Two had erosions and this and that, and you had to add all those together to get the true complication rate, if that makes sense, because they just didn't do that simple math to tell you that they had a 60% complication rate or, or something
3: like that. Yeah.
0: right. And, and I think you also found some documents where they were talking about these studies and then saying, well, how are we going to spin this or how are we going to jazz yeah. this up? I think one of them said, and then, and then another one said, well, you know, we need to tell our doctors which complications they should be reporting, right? Uh, you so, know, suggesting which ones they shouldn't be reporting.
1: Right. So that all I think is pretty terrifying to a jury because when a jury hears medical literature and, and sees just the title of these articles and you know the international, you know, journal of urogynecology, I think that's very impressive. It really is. And, and they don't always understand that companies like Ethicon, when they when they sponsor a study, which which they're allowed to do and that's great. Um What they should do ethically is then not be involved in the reporting of the results or the ghostwriting or, you know, we don't want it reported that way. And then you'd see the internal documents. And one of them would literally say, how can we, quote, jazz this up? And another one said, how can we spin this data? And the one about spinning the data, I believe that was about tvt world johnson and johnson took it upon itself to create its own registry of all of the complications with all of its tvt products so that would be the retropubic the tvt the tvts it has another one called the tvto and they tracked it all And the data was bad just bad and that's where how can we spin this you know and you even have internal emails where company employees are concerned about the lines between clinical and marketing getting crossed and that to me, I think, is, is very frightening. and something a jury always needs to hear about. Because if you just look at it from, you know, the 5,000-foot view, it, it all seems so impressive that you have these journal articles out there that support it. And, you know, Johnson & Johnson likes to rely on them. And then they also like to rely on um, statements made by urogynecologic societies, um, like AUGS, which is the American Urogynecologic Society, which wrote a letter in support of slings, which is what the TVT and the TVTS are. Um, in 2011 in response to an FDA warning. And you had to sort of dig deep behind that and look at who the authors of it were. And the authors of it were actually five guys, all of whom were paid by mesh manufacturers. Some of them actually mm. receiving millions, um, which they didn't want to admit. And, and then I, you know, digging through the database and digging through the documents, you see the um, meeting minutes of, of when they wrote this statement, you know, what it was going to be used for, and they weren't going to use it so their members could use it in legal proceedings well, Johnson and Johnson and Ethicon are members of all. Right. So, so you, see, you see what's going on. It's it's these individuals who, you know, I, I don't know if you're not in the medical community. I certainly never knew this, that the doctors can make quite a, a good living, um, you know, supporting um, these pharmaceuticals and these medical device companies. You know, in, in this case, um, one of the Defense experts on the stand admitted that he was an Ethicon made millionaire because of his consulting work. With Ethicon. Oh, wow. um, there was another. Um, there was another doctor who came up, a uh, doctor Vince Lucente, who's well known in the in the mesh world, who's made over two million dollars from Ethicon. And so, it's important to look at who writes these articles and what their ties are to the industry, because if all of a sudden mesh is taken off the market, these doctors aren't you know Ethicon made millionaires anymore.
2: Yeah, I mean I think you have I think most people don't know that. I think I don't I don't even I did not know that until after I started practicing law and I think I think even that I think a lot of people that are going to end up on your jury think that to even to even market a medical product for it to even get to the point where it's going to be implanted into someone that there was some sort of um, if not extensive testing by the man, the manufacturer then extensive testing by by a government agency you know independent testing that's happening that as we know is not really happening <laughs> Right. Yeah.
1: You know, before I got involved in the law and all of this, certainly this area of, um, medical devices and pharmaceutical litigation, I didn't understand how little the FDA actually did. You know, I would, I just assumed that everything was safe and, you know, I've had other cases involving, um, natural supplements, where someone took a supplement and had a heart attack and died, only to find out that the FDA doesn't require any testing for natural right. supplements. Yeah. And I was like yeah. horrified, you know, yeah. not to get off topic. But yeah. you know, and the same thing happened with these products, though. They didn't have to do extensive testing. They could just claim they were similar to a pre-existing device, which to me is right. terrifying because they're not all similar and they haven't tested them. And it, it, for instance, if you look at the TVTS, they had something like a 60% complication right at five weeks out when they tested it and only like 30 women, like the results were terrifying and they still just put it on the market and left it on there for quite a few years knowing that it's a problem.
2: Right, I mean, that shocked me. I think you, I think, I I don't know what I expected in terms of what the sort of statistics should show, but I certainly thought that more than 31 people would be followed for more than five weeks.
1: Right. And so I really, um, I guess one of the themes, if you will, of the trial, I'm not a huge like theme and theory person. I know in law school, they teach, like what's your theme and what's your theory? Keep, but one of the themes, at least in my head, was to just get numbers out there in front of the jury and the whole time, like the monetary value of this company and how many millions they were spending on marketing. Right. versus the, the the very tiny number of women that they actually tested it in and the tiny amount that they spent on research versus marketing and push and just so the jury had some idea of, of, of like boy not just this company's worth 70 billion dollars but oh my gosh they made in one year they made a hundred million dollars and those I think that drives a punitives verdict when it, when a jury can hear those kind of numbers and just the dichotomy between numbers that they were making their profits versus numbers of how little they spent on, on doing the responsible thing.
0: Right. I mean, when you've got a product that's so uh, profitable, which this was, I mean, spend a little bit of money testing it and making sure that it's actually going to be safe for the people you're putting it into.
1: And I think it's so important in discovery, in any cases that you drill down to the numbers and you sort of think about that and and it's hard to do because we've all been there, you know, where you're not thinking about numbers and how much the company's worth and how much they spend. You just want to get at did you do any testing and what did the testing show? You got to get into the numbers and the discovery process and think about what you're going to show a jury one day.
0: So Yvonne, one thing I've learned in this business is that you can't go get a great trial verdict to be talked about on The Great Trials podcast unless you get the case in the first place. And that's why we're talking about digitallawmarketing.com. It's Digital Law Marketing. They are a great company that does website design, SEO, social media marketing, content marketing, and everything you need to market your firm online.
2: Yeah, I mean, think about it. The first time that you hear about, whether it's a lawyer or a law firm or a business or a doctor, what do people do now? You look them up, you just, you you Google them. And so your website has to look good. Your content has to be good. And that's what digital law marketing can help you with.
0: Yeah, and they make sure that you can be found too, because you can have a great looking website, but people type into Google and you don't come up at all. They will help with that as well. And the thing that I really like about digital law marketing is that they don't go out and market for your competitors. So if you get them for your area, they won't go across the street and go advertise for a competitor or law firm.
2: They also have such a fantastic team. They, When I made partner at the firm, they sent me flowers, which was so nice and such a personal touch. Um, they do our firm's website and for better or worse it's very easy to find me in my headshot that I hate <laughs> right. because they're so good at what they do
0: exactly and, and you know the thing uh, another thing I like about them is they're they're extremely responsive as you said like if you ask them to do something they will get it done that day and they don't overpromise they won't tell you things just because they think you want to hear it which without mentioning names i've heard from some other website marketing companies and digital all marketing will not do that yes they're so, awesome so call uh, Digital Law Marketing. You can call them at 877-916-0644. Or you can look them up at digitallawmarketing.com. Again, that's digitallawmarketing.com.
2: And tell them we sent you. And you're opening to your strategy of, of bringing out the numbers. Fairly soon, you mentioned the net worth of, of Johnson & Johnson. And it sounded like you were able to introduce... Um, the sort of the punitive damages elements of the case in the same phase. Was there any attempt to bifurcate it or how did that work? They did not attempt
1: to bifurcate this trial. No, I had tried, I'm trying to think, I think three mesh trials before this one. Um, and in one of those they attempted to bifurcate it and then they decided to change their strategy. You know, um mm-hmm. ethics changed strategy. You know they keep losing. So they're going to change
3: their strategy yeah, yeah. But
1: they, that they, they've tried to um, they've done it different ways. But, it, you know, it's it's really um, in my mind, the defendant's choice. You know, if, if they want to bifurcate, I say fine. If they don't, I say fine, because it typically creates an appellate issue with punitive damages. So I let them choose what they want to do and
3: go with it.
0: Right. Yeah. right. Well, I mean, like in Georgia, the the law is bifurcation. Uh, mm-hmm. We did have one case against Ford where Ford asked if we could all do it in the same, uh, you, mm-hmm. you know, in the same phase. And we didn't object. And and looking back, I think I might have rather done it as bifurcated because I think Ford's theory, this was shortly after all the bankruptcy and all the, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, financial problems had gone. So I think Ford was thinking that they were going to be able to hold down the punitives by uh, putting it all in one phase, and and they may have been right. I mean, it was a significant verdict, but uh, they they might have been right about that uh, decision. So I I think I, I kind of like the the bifurcation because you build the jury up to the punitives, and then you get to you know have one phase where you're just talking about that. But it uh, in this case, it obviously worked uh, uh, yeah. great. So.
1: I, I loved, I, I love when they're not bifurcated right, um, right. because then you can just throw numbers and numbers and numbers. You, yeah, but, You get
0: to talk about everything. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I mean, there's no pros and cons. I've done, I have I say, I love it that way, but I've gotten good verdicts the other way too. <laughs> so I have a, I, you know, I was with shaded specter on that Goretzka case, which I think right. about the power line case and that yes. we got an extremely significant punitive damages verdict and that, and that was a bifurcated trial. So, you know.
2: Yeah. But I mean, as you point out, it was, it's really effective when you can say in, in one, in one sentence, you know, that they're worth $70 billion. And then in the next sentence, say that they didn't do more testing on the TVTS because of Mm -hmm. money, or at least that was one of the things that they were throwing out there was that it was a, um, that it was budget constraints,
1: Right. Right. Let's right. put it all together. And you know what, now I'm thinking, I don't think Goretzka was bifurcated. I'm thinking of another trial, but anyway, hey, I'm trying to think of which trial it was that wasn't bifurcated that we did well. And I I'm saw so- the wheels yeah. turning. And- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you
3: know,
1: you, sadly you start to get them confused, but yeah, oh, yeah. I, I mean, there, there's pros and cons to both. There really are.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I actually, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I could see obviously why you can talk about their, uh, their, the value of the company with punitives in the first phase, but, you know, also based on, I know you don't like the term you know, that you're building a theme, but, you know, building this sort of idea that, that the way um, J- Johnson & Johnson and Ethicon were looking at this product was about how much money they could make off of it, not about, you know, whether or not they're putting the best product out there or putting the safest product out there. I mean, for, in fact, I think you um, were able to show with the TVT Secure, I mean, basically the reason they put that out there is because they were falling behind in the, was it, ob- obturator tape? Uh, which they call it a cash cow.
1: Right, right. I I mean, the TVT was the first product and then all the other companies started putting their TVT on and then companies started coming out with um, TVT-like products that went through an area called the obturator foramen and uh, Ethicon started losing its share of sales. So rather than being worried about like, boy, how can we help women with their incontinence or fix the problems with the pre-existing ones, let's just put this TVT secure on and see how that goes. So I guess, except there was a theme. I hate to say that I don't believe in the money. I sure have <laughs> right. one. It was money. But I guess I just remember back in law school, them drilling that, that what is your theme and what is your theory? Every every question you ask about the the goofy car accident case scenario that you have in law school has to have that theme and theory in it. And I guess I didn't sit down one day and decide that was going to be my theme, but it certainly rang through into everything I did in this case.
0: Well, I I mean, and and they sort of created your theme for you because as you kept saying in the opening, these are not my words. I'm just reading you Ethicon's words, which was right. to call the obturator tape the cash cow,
3: right? And to call,
0: <laughs> and to, and to call Ethicon, um, what's their phone? Ethicon Women's Health and Urology. Show mm-hmm. me the money. I mean, right. you, you can't really. Uh, I mean, you, you can't really get a better theme than that that they gave you. That was their yep. own slide.
1: Yeah, that was their sales and marketing, something into the sales. And I think in 2007, which ironically was the year that my woman was implanted, was, uh, you know, nothing about the problems that were happening or there were safety concerns or they're thinking of pulling the TVTS from the market in Australia. Or back when we created the TVT, we thought the proline and it was the weakest material, but we never changed it. It's show me the money. You know, that's what they're focused on. So, oh my
2: gosh. And that use of the word cash cow, like you just immediately think, Of the patient as the cow instead Mm -hmm. of the product, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, I even said that, I think, in my closing that,
1: that, you know, she wasn't some guinea pig. She didn't consent to have a science experiment on her. And really, the underlying theme of all of this is how dare them. And I think I said that in my closing too. Like, like you can't
2: treat people like this. Yes. They are bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so go ahead, Steve.
0: I was just going to say one thing, you know, you kind of touched on it just there for a second, but when they developed this TVT secure, I mean, you, you made the point that the the first TVT I think was developed by a doctor, which then uh, ETHCOM bought for twenty four million dollars, and it quickly became worth you know like a hundred million dollars. But then when they wanted to jump into this this um, the obturator tape uh, market, they had an engineer develop their um, the the TVT secure, uh, and then I guess the, was it was it his email or somebody else's email where he was basically talking about some of the problems. With the um, with the TVT secure and pro- some of the problems they were seeing in Australia uh, that he didn't he, he wanted he, he didn't want it forwarded and he wanted to make sure it got deleted.
1: Right. So, so the original TVT retropubic was created by a doctor. They paid him the TVT. the TVT obturator was created by a doctor. And then, you know, when they needed to protect their cash cow, Dan Smith, who was an internal engineer, he's not working externally at any anywhere, you know, internal creates the TVTS. Um, you know, they they tested it and I think it was 30 some women, 31, maybe, um, after five weeks, they had horrific results, and and he's for literally like the Ray line would be like, "Do not forward, please delete after you read this." You know, citing what the data like, was like and, Mission
0: Impossible. <laughs> you know, right. this was so. And then there's literally
1: an internal email where someone at the company, I can't recall who now, said that the data is pretty awful, and they called it a steaming pile of C. <laughs> I promised you, I try not to curse, so <laughs> but, uh, uh, but you know, uh, that really incenses a jury. It really oh, yeah. incenses a jury, yeah. and I think it mixed. Every argument that the defense lawyers want to say, just sound disingenuous. I mean, oh, yeah. that was another thing. And, uh, you know, these lawyers, they have a job to do when they get up there and they try to play it very straight. But they're in a tough spot up there. And it sounds very disingenuous when they're like, look, look. And then you have these
2: kind of emails.
0: Right. Right.
2: Um, well, I wanted to ask, you know, uh, as far as damages go, I think um, I, I'm interested into what you in, in how you handled um of course, the punitives, which I, I think we can see more where that came from, especially with the worth, but also with compensatory damages, um, how you sort of thought about those and how you helped the jury um, quantify that.
1: Yeah. So so with that, um, one, because I am a woman, so I know what it's like and how uncomfortable it is to go to a kind really, um I, I really focused on that and it being such a sensitive area of the body um, and tried to Focus on that, and every single time nobody wants to go to a gynecologist. And I have to go to if you were to tell me I had to start going twice a year, I'd be like, Why? And there's nothing wrong with me, (laughs) yeah, "Yeah, yeah." totally. It's sort of like going to the dentist to get cavity
2: filled. Nobody wants to do that. No one's like, "Yay, today's the day!" I know. <laughs> I remember when they changed. This is um, when they changed the guidelines, like for certain types of patients and based on your history, that it, mm-hmm. your annual could be once every three years if you had mm-hmm. certain things. And I just remember that, like, I wasn't one of those patients. I still had to go every year, and I was like so bummed. And that's just once yeah. a year.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I really wanted to focus on on the sensitive nature and how unpleasant having to get any procedure down there is, because she had a number of cystoscopies and surgeries and people probing and pressing and all that. And, and then the other thing is just, when you hear it, it's like you use the medical term dysperunia, which is pain with sex. And when you, when you use that term, it sort of takes it out of day-to-day living that, that affects your marriage, that affects your relationships. If you want to have sex and you can't, you're going to get frustrated. Your husband's going to get frustrated with you. Tensions are going to flare. Um, it's, it's annoying to have to carry around a change of clothes and to pee yourself all
3: the time. You know, I really
1: wanted to give the jury that flavor. So a lot of what I did was talk about Ella and who she was as a person, you know, she comes from a big family. She has nine siblings every Sunday, they'll go over to her mom's house. And I I always think juries remember stories better than they do just hearing like she wets herself or she has this I I had her tell the story of, um, You know, she loves going over with her family, but even with her family, it's embarrassing because if they're sitting around playing cards, sometimes she pees herself and wets the chair. Um, So her siblings know to put a plastic bag over the chair that she's going to sit on and how mortifying that is for her. And (sighs) just little things like that give it um, more color. And I think the jury remembers then that this isn't just in a vacuum or what's in those medical records. This is day to day, her life, you know? And every time she got up to go to the bathroom, if I was on my feet and I was questioning a witness, I would say, oh, there's Ella. She's going to the bathroom just so they realized, Mm. you know, and I I made a point to to point it out because this, I just wanted them to understand that this is affecting every aspect of your life. When you use the medical terms like incontinence and dyspareunia and a cystoscopy, it it, it doesn't bring it down to real life. And, And so I wanted the jury to really appreciate that.
0: So it, it sounds like you had Ella in the courtroom with you the entire trial. Is is, is that uh, right? And was that a, a was that a, a decision you made to make sure that they could? You know, I mean, we we talk a lot mm-hmm. about it on this whether or not you want to have your client there all the time, depending on what their injuries and and um, right. what what they are. And t- talk about that that decision a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I usually prefer the client to be there all the, all the time, unless the client's not presentable, um, which Ella was not. She's a very presentable, very likable person, as is her husband, very down to earth. Um, and, and unless the jury would have some doubt as to the nature of their condition. I mean, even if she wasn't getting up and going to the bathroom, I would still want her there just because she's presentable. And you could say, look, she's got it diaper on underneath this. And in fact, when she was on the stand, I made her go through her purse and show the jury, here's my extra underwear. Here's my pants. Here's my diapers. Like, you know, this is the stuff I carry everywhere I go. Um, I'm a fan of having the clients there unless there's a really good reason not to, um, I've had other clients who are not presentable. They would fall asleep in the courtroom. You don't, you don't want
3: that. Um, that.
1: Yeah. You know, when you have minor clients, you don't want them in the courtroom the other time, you know, if you have a client who's, you know, too ill to be in the courtroom. You don't want them there. But if a client's presentable and generally a likable person, I'm a fan of having the jury see them and observe them and, you know, really see many of these, uh, these mess clients start crying when they see the internal documents put up on the screen, because I haven't gone through them with the client before and they're learning about it just as the jury is and they get visibly upset and the jury sees that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another issue on uh, damages. I, I thought I read somewhere and it looks like the verdict uh, I think I'm right about this. It looks like the verdict was was just for Ella, or had had you had you dropped the loss of consortium claim I for did. Uh, for her uh, Michael.
1: For her, yeah. Her husband's Marvin. Yeah. Mar- I, I did, Marvin.
0: Sorry. Sorry.
1: Yeah. I, I made oh. a choice on that. Um, they had moved for summary judgment on it. Um, Marvin and Ella, this was her second marriage and, and they got married after she had the implants. So there was this argument that, you know, that was a pre-existing condition and maybe that didn't affect the loss of consortium. And, and I made a conscious decision to drop it because I didn't want the jury to, um, assign a number to him that was low. And then somehow that carry over to her compensatory yeah. award, um and in fact when I dropped it I guess it was at non suit I guess it was at the non suit stage I decided to drop it the judge said oh well you know I was going to let you go ahead anyway <laughs> I decided to drop it and the judge <laughs> just like bored out oh I was going to let you go to the jury on it I'm like oh great right, right. but yeah. I I didn't want to run the risk um that the jury give us a, a small amount to the husband and then think well boy if his injury is only worth a hundred thousand let's give her two and call it a day I wanted all the right. focus to be on her um w- w- which worked fine I can tell you in the most uh, well, in the case that I tried, was that in 2019 in Philadelphia? It was a husband and a wife and we kept both their claims in there and the jury did a, award a minimal amount to the husband and a very high, a very high amount to the woman. So whatever theory I had in yeah. was disproved in another case, but.
2: Yeah, well, but you never know. I mean, that makes sense to me and I do think there's the risk right of like when you see a woman who's gone through something so horrible and then, mm-hmm. you know, the husband's got a claim too. It's just sort of like, yeah, well, you know, it affects their relationship and mm-hmm. and you know, he's he's there for her and and you know, you talked about some of his testimony I think, or maybe it was one of the articles I read about yeah. how much that this had affected her. But right. I think because of that, you do kind of look at what the husband's going through and you're sort of like, okay, well, I mean, that's terrible, but it's nothing compared to what she's going through.
1: Right, and, and in this case, I mean, Marvin was one of the most likable human beings on the earth. I, I adore Marvin E. Ball. <laughs> and the jury loved him. He was making jokes up there and being really great. Um, it had nothing to do with Marvin. But I, I think if I had a case where I had a, had a, had a, a husband who was, maybe not as likable um, and couldn't yeah. testify as well, I, I would I would pretty quickly drop that claim. Yeah. Um, in this case, it had absolutely nothing to do with Marvin yeah. at all. Uh, I think the jury loved him. Um, but but I, I, I would consider, I, I'm a fan of dropping claims that I'm not real confident in. For instance, the failure to warm claim. In this case, yeah. I dropped, yeah. you know, I, I. some people have a theory that go to the jury on every claim you can. And I'm not always for that. I like to go only on my strongest claims and not waste time with stuff that I can't
0: prove. Right, right.
2: Well, and Um, it was certainly worked out well, um, that you could by dropping that, that then you could turn that first doctor, that Dr. Douglas into sort of, uh, you know, a company man for, um, for the, for the defendants, you know, because the stuff he said was just, he was,
1: he was just offensive. He was offensive. So the fact that they then had to embrace him, certainly it's a jury.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it does bring up a good point, though, because in these cases, uh, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know, you're talking about a medical device where there's been some issue, and there's, you know, maybe potentially a claim of medical malpractice, like maybe they should have done something different. And you know, talk talk about the decision to to, you know, not go after the doctor, and then how you you basically have to walk a fine line with the treating doctor because you you know, you want them to be as friendly as they can to your client um, at the same time, you know, without undermining your case, which it sounds like this doctor tried to do a little bit.
2: Right.
1: So, so ironically, in a lot of these cases, Johnson and Johnson will end up blaming the doctor and claiming it's not our product. The doctor put it in rock. But the doctor doesn't always realize that at the time of their deposition. And as a lawyer, you have to sort of know the medical records and talk to your expert about about the implant technique to see if you think Johnson & Johnson is going to go that way and sort of cue the doctor in. Like, did you implant this incorrectly? If there's an allegation that you implanted it incorrectly down the road, what do you have to say about that? Um, They didn't go that way in this case, but in many cases, that's how they defend it. They blame the plaintiff and the implanting physician. Right. Here, because the implanting physician was such an advocate for the product, um, They certainly weren't going to say he implanted it wrong and they had to embrace him, however offensive he might have been. But it's certainly something you have to be wary of. We typically have not um, sued the doctors just because seemingly the products are so bad. It doesn't matter how you put it in. You're going to have problems. And in fact, we have cases in suit where some of Ethicon's own trainers were the implanters. So Wow.
2: Right, right. Well, um, there's so much good stuff to talk about in this case and it's such a terrific result that we could talk about it forever um but um before we wrap things up is there anything that we haven't talked about about the case and your approach to trying the case that you want to make sure our listeners know about
1: yeah i mean i tried the case with with two attorneys from my office tracy palmer and Aaliyah robertson and um I I regrettably, you know, at the time, I was sort of a control freak. I was, I was the one who had tried the most mesh cases. I didn't let them do as much speaking to the jury as maybe they could have. Tracy Palmer questioned one defense expert. She did a great job. She got the defense expert to admit he was an ethic made millionaire. Um, Aliyah <laughs> Robertson was, I think, a first or second year lawyer at that time. So she didn't really have a speaking role. But I will say that I, I've tried subsequent cases um, against J&J and and we have used more of a team approach and kind of in hindsight at that time, I was very like, this is how we're going to do it. And I know these products better than anyone. Yeah. <laughs> um, maybe my control freak was too much because those two are excellent attorneys. But the more I've tried, the most recent verdict I got, which was 80 million, you know, I tried it with Tom Klein and Mike Trunk and all of was put on witnesses or played a different role and had more of an active speaking role. You know, there's sometimes there's this theory that you need a really strong lead and they do almost everything. Um, and, and that the other people just kind of sit there and shuffle paper. And I don't think that's necessarily true in these big pharma cases. I think the jury likes to hear from everyone that's sitting there and hear the different takes on things. So so I think yeah. that's important when you're when you're going to try one of these big complex cases and you're the lead, you know, take some of the burden off yourself and let other people do it. I think the jury enjoyed hearing from the other lawyers on my team and, and they were all excellent, excellent. So
0: no, I, I agree with you. And, and, you know, we've done it both ways, uh, but I, I have had jurors come up, with, you know, afterwards and just talk about how much they enjoyed sort of like the team effort and how everybody was trying to you know just help each other how we hand each other notes when they're you know and somebody's in the middle of a cross and you hand them a document and they say oh yeah let me ask you about this you know and um uh you know that they they enjoy Mm -hmm. that so I, I do think I agree with you when you say that uh you know the juries generally like the team approach I think
2: absolutely yeah and they don't miss anything. They see it all. <laughs> they right, do. They right. do it, and, that, and that's always. If you're going to hand the notes, don't look angry when
1: you do it. No matter what, right, right. It's just a smile and dead <laughs> dead <laughs> Like this is going great. Yeah. Um, um, the, the best poker films I've ever seen. In this, both sat and stared dead ahead the entire time, which is it was really their only option. It was not good, but you, you know. <laughs>
3: Documents, save your products of flaming, pile of shit.
1: Right, yeah. Right, yeah. Oh, I did it. Oh no. <laughs> yes.
3: <laughs> we got.
2: We got one in. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Guys, this has been wonderful. Thank you
1: so yeah, much. No, this has been
0: this has been fantastic. Let me just uh, remind everybody that we've been speaking with Kyla Baldwin of Klein Inspector in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and you can look her up at Kleinspector.com. That's K L I N E. S-P-E-C-T-E-R.com, and we've been talking about the uh, Eball versus Ethicon and Johnson & Johnson case. Uh, Really great talking to you, Kyla.
1: Thank you, guys. I appreciate it so
2: much. Thanks, Kyla.
0: Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology. And Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining. And a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show... Or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at great dot com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right. Exactly.
0: <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say.